Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today I have multimedia producer Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen and I uh, used to work on the James Altucher Show podcast. Steve Steve uh, works in the podcasting industry. He's worked in radio. He's worked in television. This is this is the most in touch networked guy I know. This guy knows everybody. He's met everybody. He can talk about every subject matter. He's very well read. Um, you know, it's hard to find people who can just drop a literary reference and you get it like uh, or I can drop a literary reference and he gets it. Uh, I mean, what's best guest to have on this? And I'm so happy he's here. I wish he had he had been my first guest, but uh, didn't work out that way. But he's here now uh, for the first of what will hopefully be very many installments of me shooting the shit with Steve Cohen. And just to give you some context about why I'm so excited about this. Because I shoot, I shoot the shit with Steve Cohen all the time, right? We're, we're, we walk around Manhattan, pandemic or not, and we just shoot the shit. In the pandemic, we got our masks on and uh, we try to stay six feet apart, but we just walk around and we're shooting the shit. When we're not in a pandemic, we're walking around and we're shooting the shit. And um, so much of this, these conversations that we have, I'm always like, damn, I wish other people were hearing this. this I mean, this is inspiring stuff. This is useful information. This is, this is something I would like to bring onto the, to a podcast. At, you know, when I first started having these thoughts, I didn't have this podcast. Now I have this podcast. And now I have Steve Cohen on the podcast. So we can shoot the shit with Steve Cohen. Here's episode one of Shooting the Shit with Steve Cohen. All right, everybody. Kicking off the month of February, I have the one, the only, the first guest I wanted but didn't get immediately, but I finally got him on here. This is the guy, the producer extraordinaire, Steve Cohen. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very, very much. I'm so excited, Eric, and flattered, honored, and excited to speak with you. All right. Um, Let me just can you talk again. You want me to keep talking? Oh, hi, hi, hi. I'm putting sanitizer on my hands. I was cheapo. Right, I bought it at Target. It was peppermint flavored, which is <laughs> an acquired taste. It was after Christmas. <laughs> so that's why it's. At least you like, found some. Oh, some, yeah. There's some parts of the country that can't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have the supply. It was like 80% off, and it happened to be peppermint. So. How are you feeling, Steve? I feel good. Thank you very much. Yeah, I feel good. I'm like Snoop Dogg, toned, tan, fit, and ready. I've been down in Florida a few times. What you doing down there? Um, I was visiting my parents uh, who live down there. I mean, as much as I'm reluctant to travel, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but I felt like it was important to see them, so I tried to go on flights where there weren't as many people on it, you know. And I've been fortunate to go on flights that have, like, 75 seats opened and trying to reduce risk, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's probably why you see me a little bit tan. Well, so far you haven't gotten sick, which <laughs> makes me super happy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been tested a number of times. I mean, I've been tested six or seven times. And I think that um, I'm sure you've faced this. You know, we all know people who passed from COVID. We know people who've had it. Obviously, um, more people are dying per day than died at 9-11. I mean, we all know those statistics. But I think that... Um, I think also there's probably a psychology that feels like, okay, I haven't gotten it already. But 
okay, so that you feel like it's conferred some sort of immunity, or you lack, or you have pandemic fatigue, or you feel like the worst has passed us. And so I keep trying to remind myself. So you know, hopefully, could stay COVID free. And you too, obviously. Yeah, I uh, I made it, I made it a policy since testing became available to test every two weeks, no matter what. And then if I have like a close call or a weird encounter, I'll throw in an extra test. So oh, like, wow. um, I had a close I had a close call. Like we were really worried because there was somebody who I had been in a room with, who had been in a room with somebody who tested positive and was really really sick. Wow. And. Um, Luckily, neither of us got sick, but this asshole, this fucking asshole, didn't disclose it to her until after he had recovered. Wow. And he didn't report it, you know, through the app like you're supposed to. And so there was nobody who was able to call this person ahead of time. So this person just assumed that this person was being responsible and all that. And uh, Yeah, you can't trust people, even if you think you can. And uh, unless they say, you know, I've been tested. I've been tested six or seven times. All right, cool. Yeah, I definitely been tested a lot. And when I came in, uh, I'd come into New York. They make you fill out those forms. Now, technically, I could have filled it out, said I'm Alfred E. Newman, and I didn't think they were really checking. And but I did it, and I was glad. And yeah, just for the benefit of everybody else, I'm not saying I'm the citizen of the year. You know, I probably, um, you know, I probably if Donald Trump was a one. As far as like vigilance, or <laughs> Anthony Fauci's a nine or ten, I was probably a seven, maybe a six. Like I do think we all have to assume some risk in life. You know, I found some people uh, were, um, you know, were, were particularly concerned about. It. I think a lot of it's your personality, right? If it's, you know, I know people around me who are Type A people and achievers and the kind of people who are great students and really worried about stuff. And that is why they were great students. They always wanted to get an A or they always wanted to follow rules and and, and they were concerned. And, and again, I don't begrudge them that. I think that's great. You know, and I think I probably need to have more of that there. Um, you know, so one stitch in nine saves, one stitch in time saves nine. And, and I, I definitely feel that way. But I do think, you know, um, you could drive yourself a little bit crazy, you know, and some of it reminded me of when people go to Mexico and they're so loath to drink the water there, but then they'll order a margarita and have, you know, ice cubes in it with, with it. So, like, there is going to be some risk, and particularly after 10 months or 11 months, you know, you have to assume some risk. And, like, you and I are sitting over here, like, you know, at, together, and one of us could have been exposed. You know, yes, I have my peppermint sanitizer, and you have yours, and we were wearing masks, and... Uh, but so I, I, I think, uh, yeah, and I think as a broader situation, obviously, as a country, if we all did it, you know, uh, we'd be a lot better off. And that, without going on a tangent, and I know I've shown the remarkable propensity to keep talking without being interrupted. That's why you're here. But, <laughs> That's why you're here. You know that old joke like, oh, one time I didn't talk to Steve for two months. I, I didn't want to interrupt him. <laughs> you know, but I think that... So true. Um, but I, but I think, that, you know, it's interesting article in the New York Times about Donald Trump, and that we saw the, the pandemic as related to him, 
you know, and I think these people will follow him. If he told them to wear masks, they would have worn masks. Yeah. And, it, you know, it wouldn't have been perceived as wimpy or, you know, falling into, you know, an authoritarian regime or just, you know, they would have felt like, okay, you know, okay, this is the right thing to do. We're patriots, so it's patriotic to protect your country, you know. So, um, so yeah, so I think we all could do better. I'll do better, too. All right, so that's good. That's that's a good start. Let's let's go back to to earlier in the pandemic. Uh, we both, yeah, had the the floor, the uh, what we thought was a solid floor we were standing on pulled Correct. out from under us. Yes, we don't need to go into the details. No, we don't need to go into details. But and, uh, I, I wanted to talk about that because you came full circle. I, I mean, you're, you're Steve. You're Steve Cohen proper, yeah. but you weren't all summer. Um, so let's talk about that. Yeah, please. I think, um, well, I, I'm glad, you know, I felt, you know, for me, I think like a lot of people during the pandemic, I thought it was a challenge and you were there right with me and we both, right, probably had the rug pulled underneath us. And, um, and I think as you get older and I've been at this business for a long time and and, you know, and as you know, I'm very fond of quotes. I made a real point to just live up to that. And I and I think that I remember when that happened in March and I felt that, OK, you know, all those expressions I was so fond of, I had to adhere to. And some of them are events aren't good or bad. They're neutral. You can't control your circumstance. You can control your decisions. Don't wish you were, it were easier. Wish you were better. Don't curse the darkness. Light a candle. You know, and I felt like all of those things were true. I think things work out best for those who make the best of the way things work out. I thought, you know, it's the old Mike Tyson line. Everybody gets, um, you know, punched in the face. I, I mean, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. And so for me, I looked around and I, and I felt like, okay, you know, all things considered, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I have um, a lot of friends, a lot of family. My personal relationship was going well. Professional might not have been, but I wasn't alone. 40 million people lost their jobs, and the economy was horrible. People who worked as, as primary caregivers or first responders, they had it a lot worse. Or, you know, So I felt like I didn't want to waste too much time on feeling sorry for myself. And, and I think me, you know, I spent over two decades working in radio and television and, and podcasting, and I've been fortunate to be around some really great thinkers and inspiring people, you know, and I thought about Amy Morin, you know, um, your fellow native of Maine who had written a terrific book called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And I literally went through it and said, okay, you know, uh, mentally strong people don't dwell on the past or you're not afraid of taking change or you don't blame other people for your issues or you're not afraid of taking risks. And I really took it to heart and I checked to see Am I, am I doing those things, you know? And pe other people's hindsight could be my foresight, you know? Uh, can, you put, uh, can you put that the mic stand on that? Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks, man. Uh, we both worked with, um, you know, uh, James Altersher, who was terrific. I mean, he, he bounced back from a lot of very tough situations, and so success leaves clues. And yeah. he was able to, you know go into a situation where he had lost millions of dollars, wanted to kill himself, 
and bounce back. And he talked about how he bounced back. And obviously working with him closely for three years, you know, I was able to see how he did it. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, so I thought that was very helpful. I think people like Tony Robbins, whatever you want to say about them, you know, I liked how he would always say, look at the situation. Don't make it any worse than it is. Don't make it any better than it is. So yeah. if I'm trying to lose weight, I'm not like, oh, my God, I'm so heavy. Uh, how am I ever going to do it? I never seem to lose weight. I never, you know, and, you know, or or I'm not going to be like, well, I'm only a few pounds overweight. No, like, look at it how it is. And the situation was, you know, uh, a place where I was very comfortable. I was no longer working there. And, you know, and I felt like, okay, you know, I'm going to make this work. And. I'm not gonna waste time feeling sorry for myself. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cast aspersions on anybody. I'm gonna focus and have faith rather than fear, and just keep at it and 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 try and find people that are around you that are gonna help you and use it as an opportunity to grow. And you know, I think that adversity is a is adversity is a good thing. You know, it helps you. You know, I've heard the quote like adversity is great because it helps you discover yourself free from admirers and it was good and so i tried to make the most of the situation yeah um just to give some context on what you you do because uh, we never really introduced your profession but uh you you mentioned james altisher we met working on the james yes. altisher show together um and you know it, it, you have a lot more experience, though. You've worked on a lot of podcasts. You've worked with a lot of broadcasters and radio and uh, television. Yeah. Uh, you've been around the block. <laughs> and uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's interesting, though, to see how you've sort of almost formed your own. I mean, you have. You formed your own enterprise in between then and now. Yeah. And started building up your client list, even though the pandemic isn't over. And, I love that. I love just being able to take take the reins of your own life, your own business, your own profession. Say, all right, you know what? I, I'm not going to be able to work in the in the sort of format or the context that I'm used to, but that doesn't mean I can't work. Like, yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. No, and I think that I think sometimes like a different perspective really helps. You know. Uh, in that I may not see it, but, you know, like George Bernard Shaw said, oh, the only person who behaves sensibly is my tailor. He remeasures me every time he sees me. And so I think that, yeah, I could look back and say I've grown a lot and I did all of those things. I kind of just said, okay, you know, I'm not going to make it any better than it is. I'm not going to make it any worse than it is. I'm going to handle it. I'm effective at this. This is why I did all this time. And then... And allow yourself to make mistakes. You know, I made mistakes uh, past nine, ten months. I had a group of people around me that were very helpful to me. You know, people who had already done it. Um, I think successful people seek counsel, not opinions. I think that I tried to speak to people who started their own business. My sister was very helpful. My girlfriend was helpful. I think, you know, my parents were helpful. There were people who supported me. But I think, um, and then I found people that, you know, I found hopefully you find the right people to work with, you know, where, you know, you have to find 
people who that you know believe in you um want what's best for you and uh and everything could be a win-win and i think like as you go through it you know warren buffett famously said you know um you know who's not wearing shorts when the tide goes out you know about the bernard madoff story and i think that it's and i think like you learn when you're in a tough situation who are who's there for you who's not there for you and hopefully you could use it to get better and and uh and to look at it like wow oh my god this is a great opportunity and i felt that way i wasn't just saying it for myself i i felt that way and i i felt like okay you know uh i'm gonna regroup i'm gonna settle down this is a good opportunity and and um yeah i mean i think that i think that uh ben harris wrote one of my favorite books called the hard thing about hard things and ostensibly he's saying it's hard you know it's hard to start a business it's hard uh not to start a business it's hard to make a lot of money it's hard to have a lot of employees it's hard to fire somebody and so when you recognize that you know i think is very helpful and you know uh the football coach nick saban always likes to talk about how he likes um you know the book um you know he likes and i'm butchering it but i you know just a book where the first line is like life is unfair you know <laughs> and it, if once you realize that anything that happens you're kind of like okay you know it's it's fine i could readjust and deal with it and and um yeah, so I, I think I took solace in it, and I think and I think the bigger thing that I probably really learned um, is is like when you something happens to you, you know, you have to like Kamal Ravikant, who I'm a big fan of, always talked about you know things don't happen to you; they happen for you, and he talked about loving yourself or being in a situation where you kind of have faith and. And you say, if I love myself, would I do this? And I think that, um, to be honest with you, I felt good. I mean, I felt like, okay, you know, uh, a lot of people approached me. I was always effective at what I did. And then I had to learn some of the nuts and bolts and about, like, how much do I charge? Uh, you know, uh, how do I do a contract? And I got help from those things. And I realized, like, these problems are solvable. And I think initially my mindset shifted. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Carol Dweck's book mindset where the premise is that you have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset and back in march right during the pandemic i probably had a fixed mindset okay i just want to keep making what i was making and if i could do this this and this and then i felt like well maybe i could do twice as good if I, than i ever did or three times or four times and feel better or maybe there are other metrics to success like peace of mind or relationships or personal life and and some of those things I probably didn't give myself permission to pursue, you know. So yeah, so I I think um, I think it's been um, I think it's been great, you know. And I, I really do feel that way. And um, when you change the way you see things, the things you see will change. Yeah, I love that, and I, I and I love the. Um, I mean, there's a lot we can go. And you know me, on. like yeah. you know me, like we. Fortunately, you know, listeners like. I had a chance to work with Eric, and a lot of times we'd be on the Upper West Side, and he was going home, so I always try to walk with people. It's probably the only thing I have in common with Steve Jobs other than my name, but he used to like to walk with people, and I always prefer to walk to go on walks with people rather than um, 
you know, sit down, have lunch, or have drinks. I'm not a big drinker. I know I have a propensity to overeat, you know, or, and so I'd rather, I'd much rather go for a walk. And here in New York City, you have Central Park, you have Riverside Park, just even walking on the streets, it's great. So we would go for walks and it, we'd get to know each other. And um, I got to know you as a very talented, creative person, but also somebody you could talk to. And I think it helped. It helped, you know, uh, me. But, um, but but anyway, yeah, I think that uh, what about uh, the, uh, you know that this is like some people go on podcasts and they try and act a certain way. And I've always just been fairly much like, hey, what you see is what you get. You know, this is kind of who I am for better, or for worse. Yeah. Well, the, with, for, for the walking, I just I always saw walking as a great way to decompress anyway uh, into like process the day, process any changes that were happening things like that but then also like going back to the thing where like you were going through all the, all of your contacts and like talking with people and it was almost it, it reminds me of when my sister had had her divorce and she was building her rebuilding her tribe from scratch right trying to figure out who's in her tribe and who isn't and that's kind of what it reminded me of and um it, it, I think that's a lot of people in this year are have been going through that and are going to continue to go through that uh, until we find find our way back to some level of normality or a new normality. Because I too was I was in that locked mindset. I'm like, all right, I'm doing good. I'm building my technological uh, capabilities uh, with this really decent income that I'm making, and then it all stopped. And then I had to shift from that locked mindset. What did you call it? You said it was a locked mindset? A fixed mindset. Fixed mindset. Yeah. And, and, and I had to kind of recalibrate. But I, I, I do this thing where, like, I double down. So, like, if I get resistance from the world with what I want to do, with the direction I'm going, I tend to double down. So if I get resistance in, when I'm starting, when I'm making a film, I double down on that film. If I get resistance, you lean into it. I lean in harder. If I, you know, I get resistance wanting to put my wanting to do this podcast or any podcast. I lean in harder. If somebody says no, I go after them even harder. Yeah, like I don't, I don't just let the world affect me. I, I, kind of, I, I almost move with the breeze. Like oh, you know. I think that's. <laughs> I, it's I'm very... thinking of the the scene in the Matrix where the guy flips backwards. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and. Yeah, it's funny because I, I like Tom Bilyeu a lot, who's a big proponent of um, Professor Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, and he gives it to everybody, like all his guests and people over there, you know, and he has a very good podcast, Impact Theory. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, so I, I think, but um, I mean, it's funny because he always, the reason why I thought of Tom right now is he always talks about um, the movie. Uh, the Matrix, which I get what you just talked about, which I really haven't seen. Like, everybody thinks I've seen so many movies because I quote them a lot, but I, I just remember the ones I've seen. And he talks <laughs> about the red pill, the red blue pill, pill the blue or, pill, yeah, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of good metaphors for that. But I, I don't listen. I think so much of life is the story you tell yourself. And, you know, obviously I've been in the podcast space for a while and I always enjoyed listening to them. And I think I'm the beneficiary from having heard so many of them and having been involved with them. And I think that, uh, you know, I think it's it's very, very instructive to me about, again, the story you tell yourself and and um, 
you know, in any story, right? Like you can look at David versus Goliath, right? And people are like, wow, this is really a David versus Goliath story. And if you're David, you're like, great, David won. You know, <laughs> you know. So I think it's a lot like the story you tell yourself, how you're doing it, and I think that you can uh, work things into existence. But I also think that, um, you know, I think that there's a process and there's a way to do things. And I think that before, I think it was probably easier to make excuses or the story you tell yourself. And it's, and I, and like, I, I think, you know, it's not just like from March, be, like I would say when I, I, I'd worked in television for a long time and like a lot of people worked in corporations and, and I think it was hard for me and for me personally, other people might be different to really self-actualize because you're dealing with a company, you're dealing with a corporation, you're dealing with a lot of resistance every day, you're dealing with a group of people around that you have to collaborate with, but you might be competitive with. And yeah. you know, and it's a situation where maybe they don't want you to succeed as much because if you, it's, a, it's more of a, a scarcity kind of mindset and it's a place where you're always defensive. And it's a, it's a, and so for me, it was a situation where like, okay, I was effective in TV. It probably helped me. It's certainly in radio. It helped me get where I am now. I'm known for somebody who knows a lot of people and, um, and having a big network and that helped me develop it. But I think that I was, I was, I was good at it. Being in TV feeds your ego. I'm a people pleaser. There's a lot of deadlines. And so when I left TV, I felt like I had 50 to 60 hours a week that I didn't have. And I felt like, wow, I could do all of these things. And I didn't have to do certain things. I didn't have to get up at five or six in the morning. I didn't have to, um, you know, do a story that I didn't, you know, in TV news, there's so many deadlines and I was effective at it and probably helped me, you know, once I left it because like the movie Dodgeball says, if you could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball. And, <laughs> and it's, but it's almost like being on the batter deck yeah. with two bats and then when you only have one bat. So it really steeled me up for what I'm doing now. But it definitely helped me um, deal with the way it is now. But I would, I was effective. Like you'd have breaking news and you felt like you didn't have a sense of control because you'd go in there and the story you tell yourself, it could be that it's exciting, but it was also very, you didn't feel like you had a lot of control. Like you wound up missing a lot of stuff because you'd have to fly for a tornado or a school shooting or a convention. And you looked at it every day like and you had to get it done and I was good at it and I had that adrenaline and I enjoyed it but then afterwards then I, I was able to say okay no I could do this now because hey there's not there's no reason why I shouldn't be doing these things so I think it's been good yeah there's a there's an interesting story you once told me that I was wondering if you'd be open to telling it to the audience of the podcast you you talked about and this is of course my obsession with movies about yeah, the media sure always been obsessed with movies about the media is uh rachel mix mcadams followed you around oh yeah that was very fun that was such the, a cool day you were the template for her character. no i don't know if i was a template but i mean i she, think you were huh. all right so <laughs> that was a fun that story. was from morning glory or, yeah, yeah yeah she yeah. was she was came from morning glory and when i was at the cbs early show <laughs> we used to tape at, at the general motors building or right by the apples build building and you know, one day the actress Rachel McAdams came to um, the studio, and I remember 
and she was just standing outside. And I remember seeing like a very striking woman, and I was telling the stage manager, I'm like, who's she? And he's like, she's like some actress. She's preparing for a role, and she asked if she could hang out with us. And so I remember saying, wait a minute, that's Rachel McAdams from Wedding Crashers and <laughs> Notebook and all that, you know, and Mean Girls. And so, and so then when she was there, um, it was really. I remember just like you know whether you're whether a beautiful woman appeals to you, whether it's a celebrity, whether it's just a nice person or a fun person. So she was following me and some other producers around that day, and she was she was unbelievable. I thought she was just such a nice person and just fun. And I remember, to be honest, like I was joking around with her a lot, just coming up with lines from like Wedding Crashers. And I remember saying, you know, um, like what Owen Wilson said to her. He said uh, in the movie, her character. He said, "I'm not saying you should." marry me i'm just saying don't marry him you know <laughs> so she wanted to know all about news and she went to like our morning meeting and i remember that morning meeting there was a story about um a kid who was drowning in a pool and was miraculously saved and she was at the morning meeting i remember maggie rodriguez the host was like why is rachel mcadams here you know because she was just standing there and i thought it was very impressive that she just was unassuming and came by herself and i remember that particular story Maybe I was performing because she was there. But I remember saying, like, they were like, well, it's a great story about pool safety. Like, the kid, you know, he's drowning in the pool. And, you know, and uh, and so I, they were like, we have footage. And I was like, why don't we just recreate it? Why don't we just have him drown again? You know? And, and I also remember, like, I was joking with her and she had a good sense of humor. And at one point she, like, said something to me. And I said, let me ask you a question. So when the... When they were looking to do Mean Girls, you know, you weren't like, I'm going to go to high school and follow around some really abusive kids. You were probably like, I don't even need to do this. I was born to play this role. <laughs> I don't even need to prepare. And um, I, I, I thought, yes, I thought it was pretty funny. But I remember, uh, and I remember even going to the premiere of that mo movie, seeing her and Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver, the other actresses. No, I think it was, it was Diane Keaton in that movie. And Harry Smith, the anchor, said, Steve, do you want me to go reintroduce you to them? And I was like, no, I got this. I don't need you to co-sign my checks. You'll remember. So I, and she was very nice. She was like, oh, my God, you were so much fun. Thank you. And just very nice, nice person. And I thought, I, I thought how you do anything is how you do everything. And I thought it was very just compelling that she just went by herself, you know, and she just was standing there and wanted to learn and um, yeah, I thought it's great. Just very nice person, and that and that was one of the very cool things about TV, you know. And that was one thing I remember. And I have a lot of fond memories of my ten years at the early show, and five years at Good Day New York, and three years in, in local, uh, three years in network radio, five years in local radio. I, I'm the kind of person who, you know, I've talked about this when I talked with James. I, I think insecure people network, insecure people have. Like, insecure people have contacts and and a network, and secure people offer their friendship. They want to work with you. They want to make it a win-win. Yeah. You know, I it's not for me to just be like, oh, let me text this person. I may need them. I'd rather I'm confident. You know, like I think like maybe we can work together. Maybe I could help you. Maybe we could both. And I want people to feel that way. I want people to feel 
like it's a win-win and, and we could do well. And I probably don't do it as effectively as I, I could, even though most people would assume like I am pretty together with people, you know. But um, I try and just um, treat people the way I'd want to be treated. If, you know, um, if people reach out to me, I try and get back to them and friends. And, and that's what life is about. That's what you realize, you know, during this pandemic even more so, right? Like where people really miss human contact or, you know, a college friend will call me and they'll be like, it was so great that we did that Zoom or, you know, and, and those kind of situations. And, I, and that's how people measure happiness, like the relationships you have. You know, you know, you had when uh, we were working for the for, for James, uh, you you had an, a a really good sort of almost philosophy about what it takes to sort of get somebody on the podcast because one of your main roles was getting guests, yeah, and negotiating uh, their time. And what what I might get this wrong, but how many touches does it take? Oh, um. You, you, you talk about how it, yeah like, for sure in terms of touches um i think that it could it could take as many as 16 it could take five it could take 10 and i think whatever it takes you should do but i'd rather reach out to 10 people once than one person 10 times yeah. and i think there's a psychology involved in doing it and i think that i do this now i do this with everybody i work with uh you know i think that you can't control the wind. You can control the size of your sails. I'm not going to spray and pray. I'm going to try. If I'm going after something, I'm going to, like I would joke to people, oh, if I'm going after Moby Dick, I bring tartar sauce. But I think you need to have a sense of confidence and you need to feel like, hey, you deserve this. Like, hey, they should do this. If they don't, that's okay. But, I'm, I'm you know, it's my time too. And, you know, John Wooden used to say, I'm, I'm, I'm no better than anybody else, but I'm just as good as everybody else. And I think that, you know, yes, I think persistence beats resistance and I would follow up and I would, and, and it depends on who that person is. Like that person, if you keep reaching out to them, they may think like this guy's desperate or he's annoying, or they may think like, wow, they really want me on the program, you know? And I think there's a way to do it. And I think there's a way to ask. And I think that you should be thinking about you know, um, you know, my friend Nick always talks about how, what's the biggest radio station in the world? And he says, it's WIIFM, you know, what's in it for me? And so I am thinking about what's in it for that other person. And here's what it's in for you. You know, we have X amount of downloads. This person's a really good interviewer. You know, he's going to ask you good questions. He's not going to take cheap shots. He's, you know, it's going to be something else you can use. You know, it won't take up too much of your time. I mean, why do people say yes? So in my mind, I'm thinking of getting them to yes and what it's going to take them to get to yes. And I always was effective at doing it because when I was booking guests on a show, I would say, how do you get people to a party? You invite them early. You invite them often. You be a good host. You tell them who else is going to be at that party. So in the case of James, we were fortunate to have Sonia Sotomayor on or Mike Ovitz or Eric Schmidt or Richard Branson and those people were elusive and it gave him credibility and it gave us credibility and okay you don't want to do it you know we wish you would we really like you we think we would do a good interview with you but if you don't then okay maybe later yeah. you know and so um, I think again if you don't ask the answer is always no and as a corollary to that so I would say there's probably five things you know like be a good host 
Um, you know, let them know who else is at the party. Invite them early. Invite them often. But know what other parties they're going to. You know, when I was in radio at WCBS Radio, I remember one time I was taking the subway. I lived Upper West Side, and I see this very handsome guy, and he's wearing a pinstripe suit, and he's got like a Rolex watch on, and I'm looking at him thinking, that looks like JFK Jr., but if, if it's, you know, and I said, well, I don't know. But I said, I know Hachette, his magazine, George, was at 50th and Broadway, so if he gets off at 50th, I'm following him. <laughs> and so I did, you know, and I got off. I said, hey, uh, John, Steve Cohen from um, CBS, uh, from WCBS Radio, I thought, you know, I work on the morning show over there. I would love to have you talk about George. And he says, well, I'm really not doing a lot of interviews. And I said, well, I heard you not do I Miss This Morning. He goes, well, there was just one I did, <laughs> you know. And, uh, so I think that's an example of, like, how, how you – obviously, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. But I think it's also a question of knowing what else they're doing. Yeah. You know, so, like, they're – gaining residual respect for you saying okay this guy invested in me a little bit you know and it's not just you know and i also remember he was very nice and um and i remembered asking him because i had seen larry king ask george bush you know to see his license and i just said he goes okay well i'll let you know you know my partner you know and uh i said well do you have a card you know, and I wanted this card. I just thought it'd be <laughs> yeah, funny. Yeah, and yeah. he was going like through his pockets. He didn't have it. And I said, I know where to reach you. Don't worry. And I I did actually wind up seeing him shortly thereafter, like the correspondence dinner. He had Larry Flint of Hustler as his guest at his table. So, um, but I, a super nice person. And I don't know him, but I thought, I remember thinking though that you should do things that, in order to be successful, you should do stuff that everybody else is doing and do stuff that they're not going to. Yeah, do, and so you know one of the things I've been struggling with because I'm now learning how to do your do what yeah, you do. You have to. And you do it so expertly, and I'd say two thirds of the people I reach out to to be on my podcast will it'll either be a hard no or they'll just ghost the communication. Oh, interesting. And but then I, one I, hold on one third. Sorry, that's okay. Uh, one third will be, um, and this is I'm only communicating this in case other people are dealing with this too, and Please. I want them to understand. Yeah, yeah. That it's normal. Uh, the, the the final third is either a yes or it's um, I'm interested, but I can't do it now. And there's an indication that they want to keep a relationship opportunity. Right. So for example, when I reached out to Stephen Pressfield, the author of War of Art. Right. His uh, publisher said that he can't do it right now because he's in a project, and then proceeded to send me his latest book. Like that, to me, is a tentative yes at some point. That's wanting to keep the relationship open. Um, also, I reached out to uh, one of my favorite authors. Um, I won't name her right now, but she basically said she's interested, but because of everything that's going on, it'd be hard to make time. That, to me, is a tentative yes. Uh, but I'm now in the process of navigating those hard nose because I don't want them to be hard nose. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. hundred percent. And I think that you, and, and that's, I guess what you're referring to about like touches. And so yeah. again, I always tell people like, you want to be useful to people. You don't want to use them. And, and people know when like you're manipulating them. And it's like, I used to deal with publicists all the time. Now, technically for some of my clients, I'm, I'm, I'm playing that role. And it's like, I just want to be genuine. And 
a, a fast no though is the next best thing to a yes that there's a lot of different like jay-z says there's a million ways to get it and i agree like yeah. maybe you want them on the podcast maybe you could do some film work for them you're an excellent videographer there's a lot of different things you could have for them so your next touch shouldn't be like okay um please come on again please 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 because the no it could be like hey no you said no i mean i've done that before too like i dealt with i remember when i was at wcbs radio um and i did it for a long time and i think like i you know i was always effective and obviously if you want something bad enough you could do it and you could figure out a way to do it but i remember you know there was a story about um you know and humor works a lot i mean but i remember dealing with Sydney Biddle Barrows, who was the Mayflower Madam, and she had, had all these prostitutes at the Mayflower Hotel, which is another Trump hotel on 62nd and Broadway, and I was calling her. It was a story about Heidi Fleiss, you know, who was the daughter of a doctor in Beverly Hills, and she was had this black book, and she was had all these, you know, call girls. I mean, she had Charlie Sheen in her book, a lot of other famous people. And so everybody wanted to talk about, like, the secret world of prostitution or call girls. And so Sydney Biddle Barrows was this famous woman at the time, or infamous woman. So I remember calling her, and she's like, "Thanks so much, Steve. I'm trying to turn over a new leaf." And I said, "Why don't you turn over a new leaf tomorrow and do our show today?" <laughs> she's like, "Thank you, I appreciate it." And I think, like for me, I always tried to be like Derek Jeter, where he would say, "Sometimes you get beat, and sometimes you lose." You know, and sometimes I'll do different things, like people hang up on you, and I would call him right back and say, "Hey." You know, you hung up so quickly that you didn't even get my phone number. And I know sometimes I'm so, I hang up so quickly and reflexively. And then I'm thinking, wait, I really did want to do that, but I wouldn't know how to get back to them. And sometimes it actually yeah. works. People appreciate your persistence, but I think you always have to be looking into it. Like, why should they do it? You know, yeah. and, and for you right now, it made the value proposition could be that, you're great. You could help them in a lot of other areas. You're a bright guy, a thoughtful interviewer, and they're going to enjoy kind of speaking to somebody who can enrich them. Yeah. It's not going to be because you're Joe Rogan, you know. Yeah. And I don't want to be. <laughs> no, but you know hey, what you I mean. you want a joint? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like, like People are going to go on Joe Rogan agnostically thinking like, okay, well, the yeah, guy's got yeah. 90 million downloads a month or whatever he has. And so, um, but he doesn't get everybody he wants either. You know, I know for a fact, like, there are a lot of people he'd want to go on. And here's a guy who's probably done 2,000 of yeah. them. And so... Well, I think, too, there's a component of the the guests wanting to feel like they're in a safe environment. Like, they're, they're not going to get the gotchas and all that stuff. You know who my, my dream guest is? Who? And it comes with a dream topic. Okay. Caroline Kennedy, since you brought up her brother, yeah. talking just for two hours reminiscing about what it was like being raised by her mom. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I I, I'd love to listen she, to that. Yeah, I don't even know how much. I um, never see her do press. I mean, I know she's involved, she especially done? in the education side of yeah. like, the New York City education system. But like, and I, and, and I had the, the, the wonderful moment of seeing her once <laughs> on a street on the Upper East oh, Side. Wow. But um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I know I've read a lot of books kind of about her and her family, and she's my dream guest. That's the dream subject that I would love to have, like a two-hour, just hear her talk about the memories of growing up with her mom. Yeah. 
It's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. It has nothing to do with film. It has nothing to do with the arts. It's just like... it's. Well, Neil Diamond, didn't he write Sweet Caroline about her? Oh, is that who it's about? Yes. Oh, shit. Yeah. That works. Because uh, I know yeah. that like there's a, a bio about her called yeah. Sweet Caroline. That I oh, know. yeah. And... Um, yeah, that's very very cool and i think it and i give you credit like with anybody like to do this and i think like for everybody listening out there there's like there's so many reasons to say no to do things right yeah. well why should i do one or hey i'm not getting a lot of listeners hey um you know um but I, i'm not getting a lot of listeners or hey it costs a lot of money or hey i need to do this and i think you do like phil knight said just do it and focus and get better and better and better and not compare you know and i think there's the power of suggestion and i felt that way you know i felt like everywhere i went you know i didn't think i wasn't when i was at wcbs radio when i started out and i was young you know it wasn't because wow i was at wcbs radio i think it's like anybody like if you're a model some people can wear clothes and look better than others like i felt like i was a producer and producers produce things and they know how to get things done and it's not you know you're not it's not wasn't because i was at cbs i still always feel like there's so few people anywhere you go who are able to move other people who are difference makers and i wanted to be a difference maker there are people who are tractors who pull other people and there are trailers the people who kind of go with them and the people who are insecure enough where they need that association with another place and it should be like hey Here's what we can do. We have a good program and know what you're selling and think about what you're selling. And, you know, anybody I've worked with, I'm able to ex expound on what they're selling, make them more attractive. So if if it's like fishing, right? Okay. First of all, you just have to fish, right? Yeah. And if you wait forever to get the best bait, the best fishing rod or whatever, but you can tinker and say okay what if i use this lure what if That's i what use I'm this rod tinkering. or you know but do you know what i mean like and i think and for me i was like that too and you make excuse, you know i remember i had these friends i'm very grateful to like i think any friend or people around you your friends share things with you and expose you to new things so in an intimacy of a podcast you want people to share things with you and expose you to things and i remember i had these friends who were younger and they were fitter and they exposed me to like rock climbing and surfing and I remember the first time they took me surfing, they were determined to go surfing. And they were, they, and I was like, no, it's raining. Why don't we do another day? And they were like, no, it's okay. I'm like, I wear glasses. I'm like, you know, and my glasses are going to fall off. Well, you could buy these like yellow things. Whatever. The, the guy even knew that, my friend Chris Zellig, he even knew the name of those things to put on your glasses around, you know, to put, you know. and a they, special word? Yeah, you knew like, you know, those like foam yellow things that you put on glasses to make them not fall off or something. And and he, they were determined to do it, right? So I think it's, it's it, you know, I think it's similar, you know, and, and you know, Stephen Pressman obviously talks about this, the war of art, that there's resistance. Pressfield. Pressfield's right, right. Press, you know, uh, he talks about that a lot. And, you know, so. I, I push that book more than anything and I have yet to talk to him. Oh, wow, <laughs> wow. We met him when he came uh, to James' podcast, yeah. Every time I have an artist on the podcast, whether they're a writer or a filmmaker, I tell them that this is like art life 101 shit. Like, you just got to read this book, have it on your bookshelf, reference it when you're in a funk. Let's, uh, what, are, what are some of the things you got out of it? Uh, just kind of like ways to command my emotional intelligence when things get 
don't go according to plan because nothing ever goes according to plan. Right. So like one of the things that um, I talked about on Monday with an author named Aloe Rotting, whose podcast isn't coming out until April, but because April is National Poetry Month and that's when I'm kind of stocking up writers for that. But uh, I was telling her about how like how important it is and we agreed uh, that once you finish something, don't relish in it. Just move right. on to the next right, thing. Right, 100%. It's so important to move on to the next thing because uh, you'll find it much more difficult to get started again uh, if you just kind of relish in it. And so, uh, but there are other things, and there are small things like that. And uh, it's hard to explain why the book is so helpful and useful other than there are things about pursuing the arts that you're not going to be, be able to plan for. But you're going to need some sort of uh, solid emotional intelligence, solid command of your emotional intelligence to be able to deal with. And this book is one of the many books out there that can help you do that. Um, and, and I know, like, where I'm here but, but with Steve Cohen specific. selling other people's books. No, no, no. I think that's great. You kidding me? No, no. And I think that, no, I, you know, I think it is very difficult to create art. I think you're 100% right. I recall. Spike Lee, you know, talking about creating any one of his movies, you know, there's so many factors there that make it extremely difficult to do it, you know, and you have to be very, very committed to doing it. And, you know, Daniel Rudiger, who created the movie, you know, the movie Rudy was about whether or not you think it's embellished or, you know, he showed an amazing amount of determination to go to get onto the Notre Dame football team, but he also showed a similar amount of drive to get his film made. And he just approached people. And, and I just was just happened to be reading an article the other day and they said something to the effect, like getting a movie made is like having 39 or 40 tumblers fall into place. You need like a succession of tumblers, like falling into place at the same time. Like we're in succession. You need so So many things to go right. Like you need to get, the film studio to commit. You need to get the actor to commit. You need to get the budget. You need to, and I think there's a lot, and I remember reading, I think, The Making of She's Gotta Have It by Spike Lee. And he just talked about all of those things that can go, it could rain one day, and, you know, and, and or there's a myriad of things that can go wrong. And I think that brings me back to that speech I always liked by Nick Saban, where he's, it really helped me every once in a while. I'm sure we all have things that we lean on. You, The War of Heart, I really like, Nick Saban, who's won seven national titles. I'm not a fan of the University of Alabama necessarily. But I think that he talked about how, you know, you're going to have bad days. You're going to have tough situations. And he talked about not letting your circumstance get in the way of your vision, you know. And, And he talked about his friend, the football coach, who's had cancer. And he said, my vision is to dance at my daughter's wedding my circumstances I have cancer and he talked about not letting your circumstance you know get in the way of things and you have your vision and so I'm big on that too like how the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams and I think that you know we to come full circle when I was in March and that stuff happened I felt like okay you know I'm gonna focus on my vision not my circumstance and I'm gonna focus on um not making any better than it is, not any worse than it is, and just focus and 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 recognize that I could be doing different things than I'm doing. Like it's, you know, and so could you. Like if you want to be successful, 
you're gonna these are the things you have to do and success leaves clues and other people have done it you know and so for you yes i think it's important for you though to have a coterie of people around you who want you to do well who want you to succeed even in a world that people may not want you to succeed and that circles back to the tribe building yes yes um all right last last subject just when so you're you're a big fan of quotes. You're you're always dropping quotes. When yes. Amy was on the podcast, Amy Morin, author of Thirteen yeah, Things great. I Hate About yeah. You, no, Thirteen <laughs> <laughs> Thirteen Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Um, we we were talking about your quotes. Yeah, um, listen, thank you. And just when I think I've heard your best quote, you drop something like you did today. <laughs> the the Moby Dick tartar <laughs> sauce. I that is. And that, that's one of those brilliant quotes that doesn't hit me until like a minute later. I'm like, wait a minute. That might be the smartest quote so far. Or just saying. It's just a saying. But well, right? it's, it's funny because I just I kind of just always think it's just fun and I don't want to be a self-parody. Like, you know, but I think that it's funny because I was with my nephews a few weeks ago and I was just telling them a story about when I was in college because I always think I had a propensity to do this. And, and at the time... You know, and I think sometimes it's bravado, right? Like, you know, it, it's helped you, you know, just to kind of cut through. And, you know, and I remember when I was in college, I, I went to University of Michigan and I covered wrestling. And I had this friend who was a very, very good wrestler. Like, he was one of the best in the country. And, you know, and he wound, and he wanted to wrestle the number one guy. He was like the number two guy for the Olympics in 1988. And I remember saying, I was like, okay, well, Mike Tyson and Holyfield got millions of dollars. What if we got promoters to give you guys 100000 And John, this guy, John Fisher, who came from Lit, Michigan, you know, I was like, okay, why not? You know, I'll try. And so we called some boxing promoters, and I remember calling this boxing promoter, and I remember saying, hey, my name's Steve Cohen, and I was, like, in college at the time. And I was like, I represent John Fisher. Who? Uh, this guy, John Fisher, number one wrestler in the country, you know, three-time All-American, four-time, you know, Big Ten champ, and I don't know who he is. I said, okay, well, why don't I call Don King? He goes, okay, you know, tell me more, you know, and then and then I remember just having him on the phone and keeping him on the phone. He says, and he says, like, well, Steve, if you think you can sell it, and I was like, dude, I can sell a pogo stick to a kangaroo, and he was like, I want to see your face. I want to see your face face when you're telling me this story and so you call up john fisher who wound up being an alternate on the olympic team actually it was 1992 the 1992 olympic team you know and he we drove into detroit and i felt like those guys from Revenge of the nerds when they like it was a tough area and these were boxers and and it was a very cool situation for me but i think like if i didn't have that bravado and didn't just kind of like try and just say something funny or you know stick out and and uh it wouldn't have worked but i think like you have to feel that way you have to feel that way and yeah so i just always kind of learned that whole aspect of it you know um just when i thought you said <laughs> the best one you, you you went around and you sold the po- pogo stick to a kangaroo <laughs> I think we should go out on that because that is brilliant. Thank you, okay, Steve. Thank you very All much. Right. Okay, good stuff. No, that's true story.